Amen. Amen. I didn't join in singing those last two stanzas. I was fearful that my microphone was on and you don't want to hear me sing. So, Again, it's a delight to be with you here this morning and I'm honored that uh, Pastor Mbewe, the elders here at Kapuata, would invite me uh, to the pulpit. If you would, would you take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. It's the next to the last book in the Old Testament. And of the 12 minor prophets, it is the lengthiest. We're not going to work our way through this long book this morning, but I do want us to consider this prophet. Pastor Mbewe, I know, has begun a study through the minor prophets. He tells me that uh, you are in the book of Hosea. Well, I'm going to jump ahead about 10 books, all right, and uh, we'll focus on Zechariah. By the time you folk get to Zechariah under his leadership, uh, you'll maybe forget everything I've said. I don't know. We'll see. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, and we'll stop right there. All right, we'll stop right there. It's around the year 519 B.C. Bear with me, if you would, for these first few minutes. We're going to get into some uh, chronology and try to get the setting of what's going on here. It's the year 519 that Zechariah begins his prophetic ministry that's written and recorded for us in God's Word. Now, he may have begun his ministry a couple of years earlier, but the actual prophecy that we read of here in the book of Zechariah, it's about the year 519 B.C. The Babylonian exile is over. You remember what the Babylonian exile was. Under Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians came in 586, and they sacked the city of Jerusalem. They took virtually all of the residents of Jerusalem and Judea and they uh, brought them to Babylon. That's what ancient suzerains often did. When they would uh, overtake a foreign country in war, they would uh, basically herd up the people of that nation and they would displace them, oftentimes bringing them back into their own homeland they felt that over the long run, that was the best way to quell any rebellion that might come up. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did back many years earlier from the time that we are here in Zechariah. But now that exile of the Israelites in Babylon is over. In fact, it's been over now for 17 years. And so these are now what the Bible students call the post-exilic days of Israel. It's after the exile. And a good number of the Jews have returned back to their homeland in Judah. They now have the freedom to go back to, uh, to, to, to establish their homes again. And they have done so. Uh, by this time, 17 years have passed. The walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. You remember the days of Nehemiah? Uh, shops and businesses and homes, as I say, many of them are beginning to crop up and be restored. 
and life is beginning to kind of get back as usual to, to the days before the Babylonian exile. Through the uh, prophetic word of Haggai, who is the prophet right before Zechariah in our Bibles, the uh, temple in Jerusalem has been rebuilt. And uh, he was a contemporary of Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah ministered alongside one another. And just as Haggai called the people to repent and rather put so much money into their own homes, begin to put that money into the building of the temple, so Zechariah stood along Haggai and he called the people to repent of themselves, to repent of their sins, and to give attention to rebuilding their own relationships with the Lord. And this book of Zechariah is a lot like the books of Ezekiel and Revelation. Those of you who are well-versed in Scripture kind of know that the books of Ezekiel and the last book of the Bible, Revelation, is full of figurative and symbolic language. Truth be told, they're kind of difficult books to read, aren't they? To fully comprehend Ezekiel and Revelation because of all of that apocalyptic, figurative type of language. And, uh, and that really is kind of what Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, is like. It's full of that sort of prophetic language. But really what makes Zechariah something of a quintessential prophet is the fact that this book is chock full of prophecies regarding Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And I would encourage you, we're not going to do it this morning, but I would encourage you, and I'm sure Pastor Mbewe, sometime down the road here when you get to this book, he will be leading you through this. I'd encourage you to, to take a close look at the number of prophecies that Zechariah gives to us regarding the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It really is the heart and the essence of the book. I'm contemplating, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let me just give you a quick rundown. It'll take one minute. I think it's worth our time. So, Zechariah gives us these visions of the Lord, just, just a, a flyover. He talks about the coming Messiah as the branch who springs up from the stump. He borrows that language from Isaiah and Jeremiah, who lived 100 or 200 years before him. Zechariah talks about the Messiah as a stone of beauty with seven eyes. What's that mean? Well, it speaks of the beauty and the uh, perfect wisdom that the Messiah, this coming Christ, will have. Zechariah speaks of a coming king who will come in lowliness. He'll come riding on a donkey. He's not going to come into town riding on a white stallion, but he's going to come humble riding on a, on a beast of burden a donkey, and yet he's going to be a king who is endowed with salvation. He's going to be a king, rather than speaking war, he's going to be speaking peace to the nations, and he'll be one who will extend his kingdom universally. Zechariah speaks of a coming shepherd. This coming Messiah will be a shepherd who is treated by his people with great contempt, who will be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah tells us. And later on, toward the end of the book, this shepherd is identified as the son who is smitten by his father. And as a result of being smitten, the sheep are scattered. Can, can you hear Jesus revealed in these words? 
Zechariah in chapter 12 speaks of the Messiah as, um, as one who the penitent, remorning nation of Israel will turn to. And yet they will see him as one who is pierced and rejected by them on the whole. And then immediately on the heels of Israel's repentance, we have the Messiah likened to a fountain from which forgiveness and cleansing waters flow. And finally, Zechariah foresees this coming Messiah, this Christ, as one who will return to the Mount of Olives and who will rescue his beleaguered people in Jerusalem. That will then be followed by the consummation of the end times in which the Lord will indeed consummate his kingdom over all the earth. Honestly, folks, I'm not sure that there's any place in the whole of Scripture, certainly not any place, I believe, in the Old Testament Scriptures where we can find so much detail and so much truth about the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, in in such a relatively short, compacted space. So that's a brief overview of the book. But what about the man himself, the prophet himself, Zechariah? We actually know more about him than we do most other of the minor prophets. Not only are we given here in this first verse that we just read the calendar date of his prophetic work, but we're also given his lineage, going back a couple of generations to his grandfather. As I said earlier, we know from the dates given in the book here that Zechariah ministered alongside the prophet Haggai. In the early years here of Darius, Darius is the king over the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, He's the big boy on the block now. Zechariah actually began his public ministry just a couple of months after Haggai's ministry. In chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, but in chapter 2 of Zechariah, we learn that he's a young man. That's the way the Bible describes him. He's a young man when he begins his work as a prophet. Now, how old is a young man? Well, comparing that word used in Zechariah 2.4 with other usages of it in the Old Testament, I think it's fair to guesstimate that as a young man... Zechariah began his ministry, and he was probably in his late 20s, maybe his early 30s, all right? So as you think of him, he's in his late 20s, maybe 30 years old, give or take. Zechariah is a pretty common name. In fact, there are at least 20 individuals in the Old Testament that we can identify who are named Zechariah. But this Zechariah is particularly identifiable. Because he's here in verse 1 of chapter 1, identified as Zechariah ben Berechiah. Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the grandson of Iddo. All right? Now, this is helpful. It really is helpful. Because this identifies him for us as the Zechariah, which Nehemiah speaks about in his book. And from Nehemiah we learn that this Zechariah, this prophet, was definitely born in Babylon. He was born in Babylon. He was born during the Babylonian exile. And again, given what we have just discussed so far, if you've traced with me, that comes as no surprise. So, let's stop for a minute and summarize. Let's say Zechariah is 27, 28 years old. Okay, I think that that's a fair guesstimate. He's at the beginning of his ministry here. 
That means that at about age 10, 10 years old, he left Babylon with his family to come to Jerusalem. And according to Nehemiah, he left with his grandfather Iddo. We know that because Nehemiah does not mention Zechariah's father, Berechiah. That suggests to us that Berechiah, after Zechariah, his son, was born, died while in Babylonian exile. So now at age 10, Zechariah, presumably with his mother and with his grandfather, Iddo, now leave Babylon and they migrate back home to their homeland and specifically to Jerusalem. Now, with that in mind, for a few minutes, that was my introduction, consider the significance of his name. That's what I just want you to do this morning. I just want you to consider with me the significance of the name Zechariah. First of all, let me just remind us that Jewish parents did not name their children, particularly their sons, based upon how cool the name sounded. In America, that's what we tend to do, at least in the current generation. A lot of Americans will name their children such and such because it, it sounds good to the ear. It, it sounds cool, all right? Ancient Jews did not do that. Nor did they name their children, particularly their sons, after their favorite uncle or after their favorite football player or sports hero. They named their children keenly aware of the meaning of the name. And I know many of you do the same. They named their children keenly aware of what that word, that name meant. And they were wanting the meaning of that name to either be reflected in the character of their son as he grew up, or it was maybe given to them to commemorate some significant event in their lives or in the lives of the Jewish people, or it was given to them this name to communicate an important truth that the parents particularly held dear to themselves. This future prophet's parents named their little son Zechariah. And think of this. They did this as they were living in exile in a foreign country under the domination of the Babylonians. They're far, far, far from their homeland, far, far from the land of their forefathers far, far from the land that God had promised them as the nation of Israel, and frankly, seemingly far, far from the blessings and the promises which God had given to them in the covenant he established with their forefather, Abraham. And while in exile in Babylon, his parents name him Zechariah. Not Obadiah, not Jeremiah, not Zephaniah, not Nehemiah, but rather Zechariah. Why? 
Because the name Zechariah for them had great significance. It had great significance. That then presses the question, what does Zechariah mean? What does it mean? It's a contraction of two Hebrew words. The Hebrew word for remember is zakar. The Hebrew word for our God, our covenant-keeping, covenant-making God is Yahweh. We sometimes will use the word Jehovah. Yahweh. It's translated Lord in our Old Testament scriptures with all capital letters. Zechariah means literally the Lord, the true God of Scripture, the creator of heaven and earth. The Lord remembers. That's what Zechariah means. Zechariah, the Lord remembers. And that's what they named their boy. In the midst of the Babylonian exile and captivity, uprooted from the very land, the very ground, which had formed so much of God's covenant with Israel, and which frankly provided the nation of Israel so much of its identity. I mean, we read the Old Testament and we see how important the land is. We look at the socio-geographical, political uh, things that go on in the Mideast today, and it's all rooted in this, the significance of the land for the nation of Israel. They're eking out barely an existence in a barren land, this land of Babylon. There's no temple, all right? There's no Jerusalem. There's no Mount Zion to go. There's no sacrificial system to observe. There's no worship. There's no hearing of the Word of God. There's no family ties. There's no worship and praise like we've been able to enjoy this morning, gathering together with the people of God and honoring and worshiping our God in song. None of that. None of that. And what does Zachariah's parents name their son? The Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. And by doing so, what they were wanting to impress upon themselves and every hearer of their son's name was that God has not forgotten his promises to his people. He's not forgotten the promises that he made to them as Israelites, to their son, Zechariah, to their fellow Israelites, to anyone who ever understood Hebrew. Every time they called out his name, they were declaring the truth upon which they tenaciously hung. The Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. And so here they are, sitting on the dusty plains of Babylon, seemingly, by all evidence and observation, seemingly abandoned by their God, forgotten by their God, and yet every time they called their son to dinner, Zechariah! They were declaring, the Lord remembers. Zechariah! Come in, time for dinner. The Lord remembers, it's dinner time. That's what was going on. 
Let me say this, and many of you understand this far better than me. If we who claim Christ as our own live long enough, we will know what it means to seriously struggle with whether or not God has forgotten us. If you follow Christ long enough, at some point, you are going to struggle wondering, God, have you forgotten me? Some of you um, have loved ones who are battling dementia. And um, I have a, I have a 94-year-old mother who lives with us who is in that position. I can speak a little bit from experience. And I sometimes wonder if my mother, <clears throat> who came to Christ as a, as a young woman, I wonder if at times in moments of clear thinking, she questions and asks, Lord, have you forgotten me? I don't even know what day it is. I struggle to remember my son and my daughter-in-law's names at times. Lord, have you forgotten me? You who have to care, maybe, for loved ones like that, may ask yourselves the same thing. As you're cleaning them up because they can't even attend to their own toileting, as you're putting them to bed or bathing them, you may be asking yourself, Lord, have, have, you, have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten our family? Do you see what's going on? In prolonged days of spiritual barrenness, and I think many of us know what that's like, when it feels like the prayers that you're uttering up to God are bouncing off the ceiling and going no further, have you ever questioned if God is still with you? When parents pray for and love and invest in their children for 18 or 19 or 20 or more years, only to see them leave the home and go out and live a profligate life, a path of foolishness and godlessness with no interest in the things of our Lord, I wonder if mothers and fathers like that ever turn to each other and ask, Lord, have you forgotten us? Sooner or later, every true child of God will know what it means to be incarcerated in Doubting Castle, to borrow from John Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read the book, you'll understand this illustration. If you've not, I encourage you to get a copy and read it. Sooner or later, we're all going to know what it will be like to face giant despair and to be on the receiving end of some of his bludgeonings. We will look around us and it will appear as though God is nowhere, even close by. And we'll be asking ourselves, Lord, do you remember me? Have you forgotten me? Well, let me encourage us this morning with this one word. Zechariah. Zechariah. And for those of you who are going even this morning through times of despair, and some of you are, and maybe seeming abandonment, let me encourage you 
with the truth, Zechariah. And for those of you who are not, and maybe have not yet ever entered Doubting Castle, and have not known what it is to feel the bludgeonings of giant despair, let me prepare you for dark days maybe yet to come in your Christian walk with this great truth, the Lord remembers. Zechariah. God isn't like you or me, is he? And it's easy for us, by the way, to, to, to mold our God into our own image. <laughs> He's made us in his image, but it's, it's often uh, tempting for us to reciprocate and try to mold God into our image. <laughs> and, and sometimes we, we, we put our weaknesses and shortcomings and limitations and we impose them upon God. But he's not like you or me. He never forgets. He doesn't forget his promises that he's made to his own. And that's what it means when the Bible says that the Lord remembers. It's remembering in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is not simply a cognitive activity. You know, again, forgive me, there's a cultural distanciation here. I'm not sure how you folk view remembering, but in the West, where I come from, Remembering is pretty much limited to a cognitive activity. I remember something. My, my brain recollects something that has happened in the, in the past. And, and, and that's basically the limitations of remembering. That, that's not biblical remembering. In the Bible, it's much more than a cognitive activity. It means that there is action tied to that remembering. It's not passive, it's, it's more of an active type of activity, remembering. And so when we come to the Lord's table, and Jesus exhorts us, do this in remembrance of me, he's not just simply saying, recollect and think back upon the time that I died on the cross for you to pay for your sins. It certainly includes that, but it's a lot more than that. He's telling us that in remembering that and in light of that, now go forth and live as redeemed people of God. And so it is with the Lord remembering. He's not up there in his easy chair, passively sitting, recollecting upon the past. But he is actively involved in the things that he has promised and that are on his heart. And when it comes to God's promises for his people, he remembers. And again, that's the wonderful message, I think, of Zechariah. Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, who has shown himself fully and given himself fully in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, remembers his promises to his own, and he will fulfill them. He will fulfill them. Now, quickly in closing, what are some implications of this? Let me just give you three, briefly. Firstly, having a God who remembers his promises assures our faith. It assures our faith. We see this in Romans chapter 4. You don't need to turn there, but you can jot it down and maybe look at it later if you would like. In Romans chapter 4, especially verses 13 through 21, the Apostle Paul rehearses for us God's dealings in the life of Abraham. We read about that 
this morning in scripture reading in Genesis 22. And how by the grace of God, Abraham had faith in God. Was it a perfect faith? No. Even as we were reminded this morning, it wasn't. It faltered at times. But nevertheless, he believed the promises that God had made to him. And in verse 21 and 22 of Romans chapter 4, Paul starts to bring his, his argument down to a conclusion. And he says this, he says that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And because of that, he grew strong in his faith. He grew strong in his faith. Abraham's faith, as should ours be, was rooted in the character of our God. A God who remembers, a God who does not lie, a God who does not go back on his word, a God whose promises can't be thwarted, whose promises can never be broken, a God whose track record is impeccable throughout history and the dealings with his people. And this kind of God assures our faith. Again, as Zechariah's parents sat as aliens there on those dusty plains of Babylon in ex- exile, not seeing around them anything in the physical world that would indicate that God could keep his promises, they anchored their faith not in what they could see, not in their immediate circumstances. They anchored their faith in the character of their God. And so assured was their faith that they even risked naming their son Zechariah. They risked having their son grow up and become the laughingstock of everyone who would ever utter his name. The Lord remembers? Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Israel remembers? Really? Look at you Israelites. You're living in poverty in Babylon. You have nothing going for you. And yet you've named your boy the Lord remembers? Appears to me uh, your God is forgotten. Number two, implication. The younger brother of faith who always follows faith around invariably is hope. Hope always follows faith. He's, he, he, may, he may straggle behind at times, but wherever faith goes, hope, hope is right there uh, in his footsteps. And having a God who remembers his promises not only assures our faith, but secondly, it secures our hope. Hope, hope is not a wishy-washy sort of thing in which, boy, I hope my team wins the World Cup, you know. I hope we have good rains for the farmers this spring. I hope our economy turns around. I hope I can get over this sinus infection, you know, whatever I'm battling. I hope, I hope. That's not the kind of hope that the Bible speaks about. Hope, rather, is an assured, confident belief of the future events based upon the promises of God. 
It's one thing to say, I hope such and such, and to use it as a verb. It's an entirely different thing to use it as a noun and say, I have hope. I have an assured, bright, sunny look into the future based upon what God has promised me. So committed is God that his people have hope that the writer of Hebrews, especially in Hebrews 6, again, don't turn there, but he tells us that God has not only made a promise to us, but as if he needed to do so, he also gives us his sworn oath. So the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 6 says, in order to secure your hope, to give you that assured, bright look into the future, God's not only promised that assured, bright future, but he has sworn with an oath that he will do it, as if he needed to do that. I like what John Piper writes about this, and bear with me as I give you a a quote. Piper says, It's an amazing thing that God's so passionate about our being people who have unshakable hope. Not many kings have this kind of passion for their people. It would not be hard to imagine, in fact, many people do imagine, that God were the kind of God who said, Get out there and do what I tell you to do and stop thinking about whether you have hope or not. You just obey me. Do what's right because it's right and stop dwelling on the future. Do what you're supposed to do. Just stop wondering about how it's going to turn out in the end. It's so easy, Piper says, to imagine a God like that. That we should be so astonished that God is not like that. That is not the kind of God we serve. He is utterly committed to working for our hope. He insists that we be people of confident hope. And again, notice how hope is used continually as a noun. That we be people of confident hope, not of worry and uncertainty. He wants us to think about the future. He wants us to get out of the here and now and the immediate circumstances which surround us, which at times seem so dark. He wants us to think about the future and to be totally confident and assured about how it will turn out. That's what the text of Hebrews 6 is all about. When God says, I promise you such and such, and you know what? I don't need to do this, but I'm going to swear an oath that I'm going to fulfill my promises. God remembers his promises. He remembers his people. That should assure our faith. It should secure our hope. And then thirdly and finally, it should provoke purity in our lives. Peter talks about it that way in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 14. Again, we won't take time to look at the text. But there in, in 2 Peter 3, Peter covers a lot of ground, but One of the things that evidently is going on there in the early church and with the people to whom Peter originally wrote is that unbelievers were looking at these wacko Christians who were talking about this God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who keeps his promises. And um, 
they were saying, you know, you Christians keep talking about the fact that Jesus is going to return and he's going to consummate his kingdom and he's going to complete the saving work that he has begun in you. I don't see him. <laughs> You've been talking about this for years that this Jesus of yours is coming again. I don't see him anywhere. The unbelievers were mocking the believers. Well, Peter says they're fools because they think that God's timetable is in sync with their Google calendar or with the calendar hanging on their refrigerator at home. And to the unbeliever, it seems as though the promises of God are empty. Well, the fact is, God's timetable is not always synchronized with ours. God stands outside of time. God has promised He will return. He will keep His promise. God remembers. And in light of that, Peter there, in that passage of 2 Peter says, Therefore, live like believers. Live like sheep, not like goats. Live in light of the righteousness that is yours in Jesus Christ, the fact that he's coming again to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. Zechariah. That's the message this morning, the word I leave with you. Zechariah, the Lord remembers. May your faith be assured. May your hope be secured. And may your lives be pure because of that glorious truth. Will you bow with me in prayer? <clears throat> Father, we acknowledge that we are in desperate need of your grace. In and of ourselves, we are so prone to wander. We feel it, Lord, prone to leave the God we love, particularly in times of discouragement and despair. It's easy for us to begin to doubt you and to begin to wonder, have you forgotten us? Have you forgotten us? Lord, by your grace, may through your spirit and your word, you draw us back to yourself. May we again be assured that you are a God who does not forget. You do remember us. You will fulfill your promises. May that strengthen our faith. May that deepen our hope and our, our bright future. And may it provoke within us lives that are marked by purity, that transcribe the character of the one in whom we have placed our faith, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>